Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A budget of almost 2.8 million, resulting in losses of over 2.2 million, and yet no written approval from the board. A new report into RTE's toy show, The Musical, identifies a lack of corporate governance right at the top of the public broadcaster. Also on the programme, Trump takes New Hampshire and sets up a near certain rematch with Joe Biden for the White House. And tech billionaire Elon Musk says he will fund any legal challenges to Ireland's new hate speech legislation. into RTE's ill-fated toy show, The Musical, is due to be published tomorrow. The report commissioned by RTE and carried out by auditing firm Grant Thornton is expected to reveal a lack of governance by RTE's board, including that no written record of approval was given for The Musical, which ended up making a loss of £2.2 million. Well, joining me to discuss this further, Arfina Foyle, Senator, Lisa Chambers... Independent TD Michael McNamara and Fionnán Sheehan, Ireland editor at the Irish Independent. You're all very welcome to the programme. So we'll get full sight of this report tomorrow, but quite a bit of it's been leaked at this point, Fionnán. Give us the headlines that have come out from the Grant Thornton report. Well, we'll see the, the full extent uh, of, the, of the costings uh, that were in play here or our distinguished friends here from the Oireachtas managed to get to the bottom of this uh, during the summer. Uh, when RTE appeared before the committee. Up until then, RTE weren't answering any questions on, on how much money had been lost. And just to be uh, clear, this. questions were being questions asked. Were being asked. Because it was pretty obvious it, that it, it had been a flop. It was obvious that this was an absolute calamity, that there was empty empty uh, seats uh, inside in the auditorium down in the convention centre, that there had been cancelled uh, performances. It got hit with by, by COVID-19. Uh, as well. So things had not been going well at all. That was obvious. And RTE were just flat out refusing. They were claiming commercial sensitivity and so on and so forth. The first day they appeared before the Directors Committee, they started claiming commercial sensitivity. That didn't wash uh, for too long. And then RTE came back and admitted 2.2 uh, million, the Directors um, Media Committee describing it as a, a disgrace and a scandal. So then we got this investigation by Grant Thornton. Uh, initiated and it will go into the, the costings and the projections. Part of the, the, the problem will be the overly ambitious and unrealistic projections that were being put forward uh, around the amount of ticket sales that were, that were going to happen and indeed the amount of ticket sales that were going to be needed to actually uh, ensure that this project broke even. So there was an argument there that, well, look, this is costing a lot to set up in year one, but it'll run for several years uh, and that, that then ultimately it'll make uh, the money back and this was a form of, of a new form of revenue uh, for RTE. It'll, it'll set all that out. An interesting aspect of it will be 
the role of the board and the role of, of the management. And we have seen uh, often with it, across these affairs within RTE that the board has been quite quick to point the finger at management. And I think this report will make it quite clear that actually, you know, the board actually had a duty uh, and a responsibility uh, here too. So what we are hearing is there were formal decision-making processes that should have been taken by the board that were not taken. So the question mark is, well, why on earth were they not taken and where, where, why were the, the board, uh, in effect, uh, asleep uh, at, at the wheel? We know from the board's own minutes, uh, going back to 2022, that uh, it, it was said at the time by, by uh, indeed, Dee Forbes, who was the, the director general at the time, that a number of board members were already across the show, that board members welcomed the musical and that Dee Forbes was congratulated so board members knew apparently what was going on here and were quite happy with it, but yet weren't going through the checks and balances. Okay, but some of the board, I think, would have said that sort of this formal consideration of the musical happened after work was well underway and contracts with the convention centre where it was staged had been signed. Okay, but, there, I suppose defence would be this was a fait accompli. Now, you have a thing called an audit and risk committee. And the risk part is basically that you're supposed to look ahead at things that are coming down the track that, that might impact uh, upon the, the, the finances of the organisation. You also, this is why a board is in place to make sure that, that, that systems are in place that ensure that decisions are signed off on. This is not my view. This is actually the view of the current RT chair, Shuni Raleigh, because she basically read the Riot Act with the members of the board uh, last year uh, at a board meeting just before an appearance for the Oireachtas Committee. This didn't, then didn't come out of the Oireachtas Committee because effectively the board weren't asked uh, about their own uh, position on this. The focus was on the management. And Shuni Raleigh said there was no risk assessment was done which showed weakness in board controls. She also said there was a lapse of control and a lack of rigorous interrogation by the board. The, the, the executive should have provided her a risk uh, assessment. So she's basically saying this was the duty of the board. And the issue that she's getting at here is that she was actually talking to her own board members because five of the board members who currently sit on the RTE board sat on the RTE board uh, at the time that this whole issue was, was going through. So that's why this is a particularly pertinent report. OK, and let's just go back to the risk, just to spell it out clearly for people at home. What RTE had projected was that they were going to um, you know, spend up to £2.8 um, that revenue would be generated of over 3.2 million. What actually happened was only 15% of that revenue was generated. But what was also pointed out in the report was that the expectations around how well this musical would sell out, this brand new musical, were completely and utterly unrealistic. And even if they'd been met, they would have only just about broken even. Yeah, Bring us through those figures because they are they are quite shocking. The, the, the ball figures that we got from, from RTU was basically that they forecasted the revenue of 3.2 million and that was off the back of the sale of 90,000 uh, tickets. They only sold 11,000. Uh, that was across 27 performances. There was another load of, of guest tickets and, and, and so on. And even with all of those, it was only two out of five seats filled inside in the convention centre across, uh, on average. And so just to it, be clear for people, the convention centre, if you haven't been in it, is a venue. huge venue. Yeah. You're, it's a 2,000-seater venue. It's yeah. the same size as the board gosh. I think it's maybe just slightly smaller. And the expectation was that they would near fill that for 54 shows. 
Do yeah. we know in the report, did we find out what led them to believe that this show was going to be so phenomenally successful? Because anybody involved in shows would say, you know, year one, to think you're going to get 80 to 100% capacity for a brand new show is... It's gobbledygook, it's very Yeah, and, and the difficulty seems to be that what was being projected as well was that they needed to have a certain level of shows to be selling out for a certain level of tickets in order to even break even. They didn't even have that many shows, so even if they had all sold, all the, the shows that they did put on had sold out and been a great success, they still wouldn't have been able okay, to, so to, to break even. Question for now, uh, Fiona, and we will come back to you. At any point, you've looked at the minutes of the board meeting, at any point did anybody on the board say, other than, well done, D Forbes, this is to be welcomed? And let's face it, it could potentially have been a positive revenue stream given the success of the toy show. But did anybody in the board say, are there any risks here? What happens if this isn't the big sellout we hope it is? There is no record from the minutes that I have read of the RT board uh, meeting uh, throughout 2022 where anybody raises any question mark over the, the finances or the risk uh, associated uh, with Toy Show the Musical. Quite the contrary, there are people basically cheerleading uh, this project. OK, Lisa Chambers, I know you'll say, look, do you want to read the report in full? But there is quite a bit of detail uh, leaked at this point. From a corporate governance point of view, how big a failure is this? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty massive. I mean, we don't have the report. You're right, of course, I'll say that. Um, we haven't had sight of it. We've had lots of media reports. And Minister Catherine Martin has said that she will examine the report and the government will comment on it when they have the details, which I think is, is fair process from that perspective. Um, but, you know, Fiona mentioned the, the words finance and risk. And I suppose the whole thing just looks as though there were, it was quite cosy, the way all this thing was brought together. Um, there was obviously very little regard to the risks involved because there was no personal risks or consequences or so that would have been believed, it seems. Um, there was no major risks to it wasn't their money they were spending. So just get on with it and, and take a punt. But it was a pretty big punt to take. And we spent a lot of time in the convention centre during the pandemic period and anyone that sets into the place trying to fill it. I mean, it's just cabinet, it's huge. Eamon um, Ryan fell asleep there. It's a uh, sleepy uh, <laughs> a, a venue, yeah. I, I must have missed that. A few may have fallen asleep during the musical that. as well. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's just not, it's not, not really a venue you'd select for a kid's show. Um, and, you know, selling products to parents in terms of kids, I mean, we're all about the Santa experience over the Christmas. It's a pretty easy market to, to tap into. But even still, any objective looking at it would have said, this is the wrong venue. We're not going to fill this to 2,000 capacity on 54 different um, shows. So I would love to know who thought this was a good idea or who thought they could even reasonably meet the targets they had set out themselves. But bottom line, like over, you know, in around the three, three million mark of taxpayers' money, pretty much down the tubes, it's, un it's just inexcusable. And Are you comfortable with the fact, though, Lisa, that there was a board there? Okay, and there was clear governance failings from oh, that yeah, board. I think that's accepted. But there are still yeah. five members from that board on the current RTE board. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, the questions are going to be asked about that. And, I mean, Shunya Raleigh was, was quite honest when she said that, you know, the governance checks that should have happened, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but you know, they weren't up to standard. That's publicised, that's public information. And the Oireachtas Committee during the summer teased out a lot of that. So like, none of this is excusable. Um, so do the members of the board who were on the previous board have questions to answer? I think they do have questions to answer. There's more questions flowing out of this. I think when we do see the report, those questions will be asked. 
And I think they're going to have to be forthcoming in answering those questions because it's not going to just, this isn't going to go away. And at, at, the, at the heart of all of this and what we're trying to do and the, the cultural reforms and the governance reforms and restoring faith and confidence and trust in the public broadcaster, that work is still very much underway and priority for government. And that's the most important thing. It's not about individuals when we get past all that. We have to restore the public broadcaster to the level it should be at with public trust in it because we need... Do you feel you need to restore the RT board to a point where people can have trust in it? I'm, I'm going to stop short of saying that because, again, I'm speaking about just media reports having not seen, seen the report. But it, a lot will depend on how the report is dealt with by the board, how, how they respond to it. And if, I do hope that lessons have been learned with how this, when this whole saga first broke and the initial walls that were put up in terms of answering questions and the reluctance to give basic information that we got eventually, like through gritted teeth, don't repeat those same mistakes because you really do yourselves no favours. Michael McNamara, do you have faith in the board as it stands? Uh, no, I mean, when this, the whole thing started to unravel um, with the uh, independence breaking of the Ryan Torberty thing, I, from that point on, I just thought the board's position was untenable. I also all thought, members of the board, you felt? Well, certainly all members that were there at that period of time and arguably even members that were there since. I mean, you know, you fall on your sword if you're appointed to make sure that you have proper governance structures in place. If they're not there, if it takes a media outlet to break the story and you don't unearth it yourself, uh, I think you have a problem, even if you've done nothing wrong yourself. Is ignorance uh, a defence here if the board say, look, we were kept no, in the dark? Was there, well, no, I don't think it is. I mean, it's their job to, to be accountable, uh, to ask the question to find out uh, if they fail to do that, even if they were kept in the dark. The fact that they were let, put themselves in a position where they could be kept in the dark means the governance failed. Um, yes, yeah, so I just don't think it's tenable. I also, from that point on, I think maybe th there's a question mark over the licence fee, and I think that, fortunately or unfortunately, has come to pass. But, you know, the degree of scrutiny that, that there was of RT uh, is welcome and necessary. I mean, I asked a parliamentary question of Catherine Martin a long time back uh, about this, um, how much was lost and how much um, advertising was foregone because it was a huge advertising campaign that RT could have been taking in money, advertising, I don't know, Kellogg's Cornflakes, take your pick of, uh, of stuff instead of Toy Show the Musical um, and weren't. And I was told that it wasn't a question really for the Oireachtas that RT was statutorily independent. Obviously, since then, we've had a lot of, of scrutiny, but it would be good, I think, if that level of scrutiny could be brought to some other matters like not very far from here there's a hospital being built and instead of overruns of losses of a million euros we're looking at losses of billions of euros and it's happening before our eyes in real time and we're all just told oh, no we can't go into that because of commercial sensitivity but it is state money that's been poured literally into the ground um, and there's you know very little scrutiny of it by the Oireachtas um, I think that's a, a problem I mean there's very little scrutiny of how the HSE spends money generally I mean we have ministers who on the cusp of resigning or on the cusp of not running for election, say there's a real problem with HSE management uh, and they're unaccountable, okay. yet nobody holds them to account in real time. And I, I think that's not to in any way say that, that we shouldn't have looked at RT, that we shouldn't be looking at RT. Of course we should, but there are other aspects of public life that I think warrant the same level of scrutiny. In terms of how this is and going to be... financial scrutiny in particular. Uh, scrutinised, Fiona. Do you expect to see further Oireachtas committee hearings? Are we going to be back to those again I see, I see the excitement on your face already at the prospect. Oh, um, Would you expect the board members to be called in again? Um, the former board members, indeed, perhaps even the former chair, to be called in to answer questions about this. Well, a lot of those people are now departed from the organisation. Uh, there are people who are still in situ uh, on the board, so you, the, the focus very often tends to be those who are, who are still uh, in place. I, I may be attributing too much uh, to this, but I'm told that 
the, the report tomorrow will be accompanied by a statement by Shuni Rahali, the chair, not by the board itself as a whole, by Shuni Rahali. So there may be some significance uh, to that in terms of her uh, setting out uh, her position and her view on the activities and actions of the board uh, at, at that at that time. I would I'd have to presume a copies will be obviously the, the minister would have to, to give her view uh, on this tomorrow, and the the Oireachtas Media Committee will then be be passed. It's probably an issue for the PSE. PSE may well ask either the CNAG or somebody else to look at it further if they're not happy with the with the level of of, of detail uh, that they are they are receiving, but. You know, the, 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 the issue here is not, it shouldn't just be isolated to the money. Uh, the question mark here is around the corporate governance structures that were in RTE. There are other reports now being commissioned by the Minister for the Media about future structures within RTE. And this will be a, a prime example uh, to show these are, this is where things go wrong when the safety nets that are supposed to be in place uh, aren't put there. Because if a risk assessment was done, at least the board could come back and say, look, we, knew there, calculated was, risk. There, we knew there was a risk on money, we knew there was a risk on venue, we knew the risk on, on COVID-19 or the show just not taking off, but we felt RTE needed to go down this route and put on additional events and, you, and some will work out and some won't. Instead, they didn't do any of that. Yeah. Uh, in parallel to all of this, Fiona, and it was in parallel to what we saw last year too, is a conversation around how RTE is going to be financed, a conversation that's been going on for a very long time. There was a suggestion um, that a uh, cross-governmental party were looking at this idea of a digital levy or a broadcast levy. How would that work and who's in favour and who's against it at this point? Yeah, well, the, the notion of, a, of a, a broadcast levy and in some form of change to the existing TV licence has been knocking about for around about a, a decade now at this point, but I suppose since, since water charges... Nobody has wanted to go near anything that has a, a charge, a levy or, or a, a tax uh, associated with it. So they were probably better off leaving the, the TV licence in situ. That's obviously hit a, a problem now in that people are seeing the scandals in RTE and going, I'm not paying my, my TV licence. So one would expect, given the response uh, from government, I cannot see the just direct exchequer funding model coming in place, getting Not rid of the licence. the fact that that's what Catherine Martin... That's what Catherine Martin... Well, that's, you know, that's Catherine Martin's view. There's other views around the mm -hmm. table as well. The Department of Finance would say, you're supposed to be broadening your tax base and your, and your charges. You're not supposed to be reducing them and just writing off 160, 180 million to St. Asher. We'll just replace that directly from the exchequer. So I would see a model emerging whereby it's basically still probably the TV licence, because I think any change to that now is just going to get a public backlash with some additional ring-fenced funding coming from from the exchequer. Is that the, a bit of a fudge at this point? It, it is, but I mean that this is the realities of, of the politics. RT also can't have it both ways. They've been complaining about the TV licence hasn't been increased and inflation and so on and so forth. It also wasn't decreased during the crash. It was increased to its, its current level back in 2008. That, that's fine. That's agreed. That was a long time ago. Yeah. But when the crash happened over the following five years, that TV licence didn't come down. Either. All right. So the, what has been suggested here, Lisa Chambers, is this broadcast levy, based on your broadband rather levy, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 euro a month. Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, no, and I don't think it'll happen either. Um, so, so what will happen then? Not, I'm not entirely sure what will happen. The Future of Media Commission reported back in 2022 and they, they identified three possible avenues, the TV licence, exchequer funding, or what we would call a universal charge. 
Uh, the Taunisha has expressed a view that a universal charge is his preferred option, Neil Martin, that's my own party leader. Um, the, the issues around, so the TV licence is having difficulties because people aren't, not everyone's paying it, we acknowledge that. If you go for direct exchequer funding, the difficulty you have is that there's no clear demarcation line between government and media. So you disagree with that idea? I do, because I just think it's a, it's a dangerous path that we don't need to go down because you don't want the government of the day, whoever they are, to have yes. that level of influence, potential influence over the media. At this you stage, need though, that line. we've had all of these conversations. There seems to be absolutely no consensus either within parties or across governmental parties about what would work. Well, like, it's, it's, still been, it's, it? It, it's still being discussed. And I think the, whole, the RTE debacle and I mean, the issue with the TV licence have kind of brought it to the fore because it was being long-fingered, if we're being honest about it. But I think now... And you think it'll be sorted this year, will you? I do. With, I, with I, the local I, elections I, and I, potentially yeah, national I, elections? I do, I do think they'll make it decision this year because they have to. I think this has brought it to a head. Um, there's issues with the TV licence. They don't want to go down the exchequer funding for the reasons I've outlined. The universal charge is an operation in, in Finland. It works quite well. Revenue collected, it's capped at €163. Euros, taxed on income over, over 14000 So there is an alternative option that I think once we get through the discussions and it's properly considered, because it does need to be properly considered and not rushed through either, I do think you'll find a solution to it. But okay, Michael I think, Mar, what do the you think? the TV licence will stay in place until that point. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to to have a conversation about what is public service broadcasting before we decide how we're going to fund it. I mean, uh, Dancing with the Stars might, might be very good television, but is it public service broadcasting? Is it something that we want to subvent with uh, a fund, however the fund is is raised? I mean, is Ireland's fittest family, 2FM? I mean, there are a lot of what is public service broadcasting. Is well, what do you think it should be? Well, I mean, do you think it should be funded? I mean, we do have public service broadcasting that's directly subvented by the Exchequer, and that's uh, Tina G, I think it does quite a good job. I mean, it's a, the Irish language, which is arguably could not operate uh, without a subvention because of the numbers of people who, who So do you, speak do you think Irish. we already have a public sector broadcast? We do. I mean, we there has to be, at all? Well, there has to be a question mark around news and current affairs, but I mean, then how do you make sure that news and current affairs is um, is completely neutral and impartial? And what what is neutral and impartial? I mean, I've I watched, I suppose, the BBC in particular go from what I would have regarded as quite impartial to something that's a lot more partial at the moment. And okay, I mean, so, so I think there's a general you, drift. Um, what's your answer here? Well, my answer is a level playing pitch where everybody is uh, subject to the broadcasting um, acts as they, they currently are in the BAI. But how do you think it should be funded? What, what, how should it be funded? Um, well, I think you're going to have to differentiate between what's funded through commercial advertising and what's where there's no commercial advertising and at the moment RT is, is, is a mix of the two and it seems to me to be unsustainable. I mean, we're going to, I would have thought to, to, to divide RT into the commercial side of it and the non-commercial side of it where there is no advertising. So do you think there should be, I'm just not quite clear, what role should the public pay? Do they pay a broadcast levy? Do they pay a digital levy? Do they pay I mean, a TV licence? Well, what about a subscription? If you want to watch RT, you pay a subscription. If you, I mean, oh, people, no, are quite no, no, no. people are quite prepared to pay a subscription to watch... I mean, sport. I think people would actually watch a lot more RT if they could show more sport. And of course, that costs money, so it might take a subscription you're, you're to do it. Sorry, no, I mean, like, like that's, that's a bit of a reality check. We have to fund public service broadcasting. We need to fund RT news, trusted news sources, shows that capture our culture and our history and, and what are they? document. I mean, I'm, and, no, I'm not saying we throw it all out. Or that, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, you're, you're kind of suggesting to throw the whole lot out. We do need to fund it properly. No, I'm saying we need trust. I'm saying we need trust. You're, you're trust saying I, putting RT I, behind it. Paywall, essentially. Yeah. Uh, no, but I'm saying that we need trusted news and current affairs. But I mean, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of trust even in 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 yourself. Well, so would I. There's a certain amount of trust in in news talk in, in today. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. BFM, and I mean, they're not subvented, but they are subject to very strict uh, regulation. And I mean, I think, so the idea that we can't have trusted news and current affairs without... Uh, a license fee, I, I'm not entirely okay. convinced of, but I'm willing to listen to the arguments okay. that RT might make in that regard. Very briefly, Fiona, are you confident that this will be sorted this year? I don't I'm going to ask you to park your cynical uh, journalist I, I don't think for a, a moment, if you can do that. I don't for a moment think a, a new solution will be in place, but I think a, a roadmap, uh, people are very f- fond of that phrase in, in politics, setting out something that, that will happen into the future. But I mean, there is a, there's a massive danger there. The notion that a minister for communications would be deciding this is how much we're going to give you this year. Absolutely. I mean, if you had a party in, for example, who was so hostile to the media that they were frequently suing them, which that could might, happen. which could easily happen, Very that soon. that might create a slight difficulty in that regard. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave. In Poland right now, with regard to to, to to changes in people, like huge scale firings of of people in the in the state mm-hmm. broadcaster because the government changes. I mean, that's not a, a healthy way either. All right, okay, we'll leave that conversation uh, there for now. My thanks to uh, Fiona Sheehan, or my other guests are staying with me. And up next, Trump looks set to be the Republican presidential contender after his New Hampshire victory makes it two from two. Join us in a few minutes. Very welcome back. Well, Donald Trump has come one step closer to becoming the Republican presidential candidate after winning the New Hampshire primary. It might not have been the complete knockout blow he would have liked, but Trump beat his contender Nikki Haley by about 10 points. It does seem, however, that the former US president now has an unstoppable momentum to face Joe Biden in November. Well, we're joined in studio by Scott Lucas from UCD's Clinton Institute and down the line by Greg Swenson, Chairman of Republican Overseas UK. You're both very welcome to the programme. I want to come to you first, Greg, because Nikki Haley said uh, last night the race is far from over, but do you feel it's pretty close to finishing for her now? Well, I think if you just, if you look at the current situation, yeah, it's close to being over. In other words, Trump seems to be on a path to winning and there's no obvious way for Mrs. Haley to to catch up. But but you have to remember a few things. One is she won nine delegates last night and Trump got 12. So it, it's not like it's a mistake to stay in the race. I I think it's wise of her to stay in the race because you, you never know what can happen with this election. You know, this is a very unusual cycle. 
President Trump is 78 years old. He's got the 91 indictments. You know, there are unpredictable things that might happen. So I think it's wise to, to play for number two and, and hope, not necessarily hope, but, you know, understand that something might change. And, and I think it's wise for her to stay in. Um, next is her own, as she calls it, the sweet state of South Carolina, where she was governor. Is there momentum building around that particular state for her? What is the expectation there? And are the type of voters that did support her in New Hampshire in South Carolina? Not as many. And so I wouldn't be too optimistic about South Carolina. I, I was thinking if Trump did have, as you pointed out, a knockout blow in New Hampshire, it might be time for Nikki to hang it up. But remember, you know, candidates don't usually start dropping out till after Super Tuesday. This is still way early in the in the process. She might not crush it in South Carolina. She's polling 30 points down. It's a different electorate than New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire is very well suited for Nikki Haley because independents can vote in the Republican primary. The Republicans are somewhat more moderate in New England. So I thought, you know, New Hampshire was very well suited. She outperformed the polling. She was supposed to come come in down 20 points. The last few polls had her at down 22, 22 and 27. And the real clear average was, you know, 19 or 20. And then she only lost by 10 or 12. So, you know, I, I think it doesn't mean that she's going to come back and win this thing, but I think she can hang in through South Carolina. Maybe she outperforms. She'll lose, but she might only lose, you know, by some margin less than 30 percent where the current polling is. So, again, I think it's wise for her to stick it out. She might think it's wise to stick it out. You clearly think it is. Will her donors, those all-important donors, will they stick with her through and through and you hope know, for a breakthrough? That, that's a great question. I think uh, Reed Hoffman, I believe his name has already dropped. And so I think some donors will drop. This is, this is what happened to Ron DeSantis. And so that's a critical part of the formula. It might be a little too early to, to understand that. But, you know, I think, again, I'm, I'm not suggesting she has great momentum to go win South Carolina. I don't think that will happen. But I do think there's enough uncertainty in this election cycle with both candidates, both Biden and Trump, that it's worth sticking around just in case something odd happens and you want to be in, in the game. And she's, you know, again, she picked up delegates. She's still, you know, in the race and, and there's no one else running officially anymore. So besides besides Nikki and, and President Trump. Uh, she congratulated Trump on his win. He responded by saying, basically, if she stayed in the race, she'd be under investigation if he became president. Uh, yeah, despite it, all of this, you know, Trump responding in a way I think we've come to expect, could she ultimately end up on the ticket with him, given the fact that she is bringing in some of these more independent and moderate voters? It, you know, from an electoral perspective, that would be the wise choice. But I'm afraid that would really annoy his base. You know, she's doing very well with independents. She won 60% of them. She does well with moderates. She's got support financially from the more moderate part of the Republican Party, as well as Democrats, do, doing a fundraiser in New York next week and, and will raise some money from Democrats. So I, I think from a purely electoral perspective, I think it makes sense because it expands the, you know, the, the reach into the part, parts of the party that might not like Donald Trump. She, you know, maybe she could help with moderates. 
I would argue she she could help with suburban women, although she's actually doing better with men right now than she is with women, um, in in terms of the two the two primaries that have happened so far. But, you know, it just it might just annoy the base, you know, the hardcore Steve Bannon support that that Trump has. So I, I don't think that will happen. Crazier things have happened. Look at Reagan and Bush in, in 1980. You know, they were enemies. And Reagan wanted to pick up that that more moderate, traditional New England Republican wing of the party. And it was a smart move. I don't know that, that Trump can can do that, though. It, it might just be a, a, you know, a, a bridge too far. All right, Greg, I just want to go back to uh, my panel here, in particular to um, Scott Lucas. Who does Joe Biden want to face this time around? Well, let's talk about what the polls say. And that is that Donald Trump and Joe Biden run neck and neck in polling right now. Trump is ahead by a small margin in some polls. Biden's ahead by a small margin in others. Nikki Haley consistently across almost all polls over the last two months has been about four to six percentage points ahead of uh, Biden. So if you wanted to play the smart practical move, the Republicans should go to Nikki Haley mm -hmm. as the more logical choice probably to maintain an edge over Biden for a number of reasons. But we're not talking logic here. We're talking about a party which is very fractured, almost being riven by this so-called mythical base. And to be honest with you, I think the Biden folks are happy with that mm -hmm. because as diehard as that base may be, it is still a minority of the Republican Party. And importantly, it's not just Republicans or Democrats who decide elections, it's independents. And those independents, uh, we look in somewhere like New Hampshire, are voting for somebody like Nikki Haley. We can see that. Where do they go if she's out of the race? Oh, I mean, if they right now, they've got nowhere to go in the Republican Party. And that, in fact, is, is that there's a lot of Republicans. And I think Greg's comments are fascinating. Greg has been a stalwart defender for years of Donald Trump. He's a great person to be opposite against. But you could hear in his comments now that he's moving to the idea that there needs to be an alternative, which is still on the table. Remove the alternative and a large section, don't call them never Trumpers. You might call them establishment Republicans, moderate Republicans. The registered Republicans. Registered Republicans would be uncomfortable with it. So in terms of where independents go in a general election, I think you can discard the fact that, you know, people like Cornell West as a third party candidate, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., what we're talking here is probably two elections in which one prevails. One is an election of spectacle, the circus, the tweets, the insults, like 2016. Trump has a better field when that takes place. But in an election of issues, where I think you have to have the media being responsible, mm -hmm. where voters have to have a clear sense of what their local and national issues are, that would tend to favor Biden. Well, that was my next question. How, when are we going to see, first of all, the Democratic Party really launch their campaign? And what is it going to look like if Trump is the opponent? Hey, here's a newsflash. Although a lot of the U.S. media may not have noticed it, they already have launched their campaign. If you look at what has been put out consistently, there has been a big emphasis on the economic news. Mm. U.S. GDP up 5%, inflation coming down month on month, the U.S. outperforming many European economies. If you look at where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were yesterday, in Virginia, campaigning on the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision for women's rights over abortion. The problem here is not that the Democrats aren't putting out the message, but there often is so much white noise out there, whether it's Trump's legal problems, whether it's Trump's personal problems, 
do they get to be able to break through with reality on the issues rather than the circus that Donald Trump is the ringmaster? Are they making an effort, do you think, to not get involved, to not feed the circus, to not comment on Trump again? Now, they, they do comment on Trump. And you'll see Joe Biden, for example, make fairly acerbic comments. For example, when Donald Trump confused the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with Nikki Haley, uh, you know, over the weekend. The problem here is, is you do not want to react to the circus because it just keeps the show going with everybody. It thrives on the circus. Exactly. So you've got to bring it back to a base, which is there is a space to talk about what is the most critical election in U.S. history since 1865. Not just LGBT issues, women's issues, climate change, the economy, foreign policy, but the fact that in 2021, one of the potential candidates for president launched an attempted coup to stay in office. Uh, Does it frustrate you, disappoint you, worry you that these are the two options facing the American public this November? I mean, I'm going to give you two answers. I'll give you an answer as an analyst, and that is, as an analyst, no, this is the way that a democracy works. This is the way that an American system works. And this is what people want so far. Well, wait a minute. This is the second part of my answer. As a person who still is completely tied to my country after 40 years of living abroad, It's more than frustrating. It is tragic and it is worrying because what you have is really a question of an American system which has lasted for 250 years, which is a cracking point. And it's a cracking point not just because of a man named Trump, but because elements of that system are not doing their job to highlight the issues that are at stake. Yeah, Lisa Chambers does the prospects, and let's face it, I think... No matter what really happens here, I think we probably are looking at a Biden-Trump unless something cataclysmic should happen, Donald Trump. Does the idea of those two men going head to head again inspire you? No, I don't think it inspires anybody. I mean, I've got time for Joe Biden and obviously his Mayo connections and he visited Mayo um, last year, so that was a great, great for my home county. But um, it's their system and the way that it's funded. It's completely different to here. You need so much money just to contest the primaries and, and to even attempt to get on a ticket in the US mm-hmm. that it's just it's just not open to every citizen to contest, unlike here, where realistically any citizen in the country can contest an election realistically. So well, do, you, you know, need so money behind you too to run a successful election well, campaign well, in well, Ireland. You a, do. You do, but, but but we have a system where donations are severely limited. Everything is publicised um, and there are rebates for candidates. So we make it as easy as possible. We have mm-hmm. a very good system. We really do. So yeah, I'm not inspired by it. If Trump were to be elected, look, we've survived him before and we'll survive him again. It's a four-year term and then we're done. And if Biden gets through, and I hope that he does for the sake of the environmental issues that we have to tackle Mm -hmm. globally, their foreign policy positions in relation to NATO and what's happening in the Middle East, there's so much at stake globally if the wrong person goes into the job of the leader of the free world. We always look to the US to maintain stability globally. So it's a really important position. But ultimately, it's a matter for the American people who they elect. Um, and I think it's good to see Nikki Haley fighting it out because mm-hmm. it's good that there's an alternative. And yes, Trump is beating her, but she's she's showing pretty well. She's showing, considering what she's up against, she's showing well. So it gives you a glimmer of hope that there is some succession planning happening and that, look, we, we'll, we'll get through what happens, whatever uh, happens. Uh, Michael McNamara, um, Lisa's saying, look, you're getting, Joe's getting the thumbs up because of the Mayo connection. <laughs> so is Donald then going to get the thumbs up because of the Claire connection? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
No, but I mean, I just think that an election between between Trump and Biden very much calls into question the idea of American leadership of the world and American preeminence in the world. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think that either of them are exactly coming out with new ideas, um, or if they are, then we're not hearing about them. It may well be that that that, that in deep down in some policy document there are some new ideas somewhere. But I mean, and a lot you know, of people both... now in Ireland, and we don't have a say. I'm not suggesting for a second we do have a say in what happens in America, but a lot of people in Ireland and now getting more and more uncomfortable with Joe Biden given his position over Israel. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Joe Biden talked a, a, a very good talk in the Dáil when he addressed both houses um, about peace and the importance of peace. But then when it came to discussing Ukraine, I mean, he was quite bellicose, I, I thought at the time. And I mean, obviously, uh, whatever his intentions are, whatever he's trying to persuade uh, the parties in the Middle East to do, he, he's not, uh, for the moment, or at least it's a, not apparent that he's achieving very much. I mm. um, just want to go back to uh, Greg. Do you feel that Joe Biden has the ability to beat Donald Trump again? I think it's a possibility. Uh, both candidates have some real challenges. Um, you know, I, every year or two, Scott can agree. Scott and I can agree on things, and it's it's always changed. good to agree with him once in a while. Sorry, to, sorry, sorry but, to cut across you, Greg. Have you changed your yeah. position on Donald Trump now? No. Well, look, if he wins the nomination, I will. I would hope that he beats Joe Biden. But I think that both have challenges. Um, Trump has a challenge with independence, 66% of the polling in New Hampshire, 66% um, of, of independents said they would not vote for him. And only 81% of Republicans said they'd vote for him. So the co coalition isn't really back to 90, which is where candidates need to be. Um, whether they're incumbents or quasi-incumbents, they should be at 90. Um, but, but then again, by President Biden has some challenges, too. His coalition is fracturing a bit. He's down with African-Americans. He's down with Hispanics. He's down even with the young, the youth vote, perhaps because of the, the Gaza-Israel situation. But he's down 20 to 30 points in those metrics. Very hard for a Democrat to win without, without those identity groups. Okay. And the other problem is the two big issues for Americans right now in the polling are the economy and the border. Biden's polling at 31 on the economy. He's polling at 18, the 1-8 on the border. All right. Those are going to be big voting issues. OK, look, we have to leave that discussion there for now. My thanks to Scott and to Greg. No doubt we will speak to you again over the next couple of months. After the break, tech billionaire Elon Musk says that he will fund legal challenges to Ireland's new hate speech legislation we discuss. You're very welcome back. Well, billionaire tech boss Elon Musk has pledged to fund any Irish legal challenges to forthcoming hate speech legislation. In an online interview with Gript, the former or the owner of X, formerly Twitter, described the legislation as an attack on free speech and an attempt to suppress the voice of the Irish people. Well, the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill, also known as the Hate Speech Bill, is currently before the Shannon. And I'm joined again by my panellists, Fianna Foyle, Senator Lisa Chambers and Independent TD Michael McNamara. Uh, Michael, do you welcome Elon Musk's intervention here? 
Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's showmanship, isn't it? I mean, that's what he does. But, I mean, there will be a question mark over the legality of, of funding it. Um, it's not clear-cut, but, I mean, there's a, a 1634 Act in Ireland, uh, believe it or not, uh, um, that... Um, calls into question whether somebody can fund a case taken by, by somebody else. Um, whether a third party, yeah, somebody yeah. You know, without a link to Ireland, I suppose, could fund a challenge here. Yeah, and, and that he might fall foul of that. He, he might not, but I mean... Uh, you know, who, but X, I suppose, has its European headquarters here in Ireland, so perhaps through that company he might find a way of challenging it? He may well do, but I mean, uh, arguably he would only do so if X was being prosecuted or was somehow uh, had to amend its practices in accordance with the, this, this new law, if it comes in. I mean, it, it hasn't... Um, it hasn't been passed by the Shannon yet. It was passed by a very large majority in the, in the Dáil... Um, some time ago, uh, and actually, it's been year. yeah, it's been delayed for whatever reason in the Shannon. Maybe Lisa could. Bring well, I think it's been delayed in the Shannon. Really, because of you, Lisa Chambers, is it because of a revolt within Fianna Foyle against, I take it, aspects of this legislation? Uh, yeah, no, we have we have issues with it. Mm. Um, it went through the doll kind of nearly unnoticed, and then the public kind of took interest at that point, and the emails started flooding in. Um, it was brought up in a meeting with the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party by myself in June of last year. Mm. Um, and many members expressed frustration that as a party, as a parliamentary party, we had never been consulted on this bill. It was part of the programme for government, but it wasn't coming from the Fianna Fáil Party. It was um, coming from the Fine Gael Party. I believe so, but um, it, the, the point we had made at the meeting was that we were never consulted on this. So what happened at that meeting was a subcommittee of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party was established chaired by Jim O'Callaghan, I was a member of that, and we produced a document for our own party setting out the issues as we saw them that we so wanted to address. So what are addressed. they? What are your so, concerns about this legislation? Yeah, I'll go through some of the, the, the matters that were contained in the document. Um, we have some issues being raised around that you no longer have to demonstrate that you were motivated by hate, um, or show that you're motivated by hate, only that you demonstrated hate in, in the immediate aftermath. So it does change the threshold for bringing a prosecution for hate crime. It lowers um, the threshold. It lowers the threshold. So we have hate crime, we have hate speech, two separate elements. We don't have hate crime legislation in the state. I think we need it. Um, but what it does is take an existing offence and add on an aggravated element and give you a longer sentence. It does hate, it does hate as an element. It's the hate speech element that I think is, is causing the most consternation. We already have hate speech laws in the country. People mightn't have been aware of that until this debate kicked off. This is seeking to broaden... On much narrower grounds. Yeah, exactly. This seeks to broaden the grounds on which you can you can be accused of hate speech. And this, is, this is legislation back from the late 1980s, long, long isn't it? Ago. I think it's 1989, yeah. hasn't yeah. been updated in the era of social media, etc. No, so it's kind of expanding the, the, the categories under which you can deem somebody to have said something hateful and it also lowers the threshold or proposes to lower the threshold. We have issues around the gender definition that's contained in the bill um, because it says uh, male or female or transgender, which is fine, but then it says an, and a, a gender other than male or female, which is not defined in Irish law. Um, we also uh, have raised concerns around the fact that there's no definition for hate or incitement in the bill. Um, the rationale for that appears from the AG that we don't need it because it's the, the terms are well understood. I disagree with that. Was and this actually, legislation rushed, do you think, Lisa? I, I believe there was quite a lot of drafting done. I mean, this is the legislative process. So it's come to the Shannon. It's our job to scrutinise legislation. So in terms okay, of the so definitions... I just the, I'm very conscious of time. Sorry, Lisa. Just yeah, I suppose, it's just a general question about how the doll operates. But I mean, if, if, if Fianna Fáil had all these concerns and they weren't consulted, then I suppose I'm just curious as to how 
every member of Fianna Fáil voted for this at every stage in the Dáil. I mean, that's, that's it's a general all, question about, uh, guess, yeah. about the use of the whip in Ireland to just well, I can, bludgeon I can people question. into submission. To, to, oh, be, to be fair to Dáil colleagues, um, it's a government bill. So it was put forward by the Justice Minister and it, was, and it, and it really hadn't, I suppose, there was no major interest in the public at that point. And so, I think, but so whatever you throw in front of them, they'll vote no, for No, no, no. But I, I mean, all I can speak for is my part as Shannon leader. And when it mm. came to our house, okay. we scrutinised the legislation. There is a document. I believe the minister is preparing amendments mm. and we have sought a meeting with her and she's agreeable to meeting with us. But Is it, it a massive attack as it stands on freedom of expression, Michael, as it, Elon Musk says it? It introduces a, a lot of uncertainty as mm. it stands. And I mean, a, a huge amount. The, the, the level of uncertainty that it introduces is not good in criminal law where you want certainty and very clear definition. All right, look, at, uh, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you to Lisa and thank you to Michael. We will return to that topic from the late team here. Good night, everyone. Do take care. See you back here tomorrow. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.